Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your love and for your mercy. And Lord, we thank you that um, we are accepted in the Beloved. That in Jesus, there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness and there is hope and there is a future. And that's why we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. That's why we come and we sing and that's why we give you praise. And Lord, it's our desire to become men and women who love the things that you love who recognize the things that you recognize, who accept the things that you accept, and who rejects the things that you reject. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be men and women who love to praise you, who love to pray to you, who love your word, and who believe, Lord, that your judgments are altogether true and altogether just. In Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel chapter 16. It says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I've refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took 
the, the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. We're introduced to the man after God's heart. David. Warren Wiersbe in his outline studies begins chapter 16 with this statement, quote, As Saul is a picture of the carnal life, so David is a picture of the spiritual life of the believer who walks by faith in the Lord, unquote. Granted, it's not a perfect picture, and Wiersbe says as much. He says, quote, it is true, David sinned. Unlike Saul, however, David confesses his sin and seeks to restore his fellowship with God, unquote. So David is going to be described in the scripture in chapter 16 and 17 and 18 and 19. And as we make our way through First and Second Samuel, the scripture is going to call him the shepherd and the singer and the soldier. And he will be hunted or sought. He will be sovereign. He's depicted as a sinner. He's depicted as sorrowful. He's depicted as a statesman. He's depicted as a statistician, a sponsor, a sage, and a scribe. He's called a scribe because David will author over 150 different psalms. And so in chapter 16 and 17, we'll move through three scenes in his life, in the early life of David. It will open as a young man, the shepherd, keeping his father's flock. In the second scene, we'll see him in Saul's camp as a soldier. And in chapter 17, perhaps one of the most famous stories in all of the Old Testament, where David confronts a giant. And so... In chapter 16 and 17, it, it's going to be filled with lessons. And it, this is going to be a situation where, I don't know if you've ever looked for treasure, but it's going to be scattered everywhere. All you have to do is just stoop down and pick up the treasure that's going to be in front of you. David comes from a life of monotony and obscurity. And solitude. He is a young man growing up in horrible conditions. And he has sheep and bears and wolves and stars. How is it possible that those are the ingredients that God would use to prepare his servant for the throne? And you may have grown up in less than comfortable circumstances. Outstanding circumstances. Maybe you're familiar with monotony and obscurity and being by yourself. One of the most amazing things that we learn from chapter 16 and chapter 17 right off the bat, and you, you hear me often say this, that there are two kinds of things in the world or two kinds of people in the world. I know I've said it so many times. It's, it's an old, old joke. You know, Italian people and people wish they were, but there really are two kinds of things that God accepts in the world. Things that he accepts and things that he rejects. And that's going to be one of the great big things that you're going to learn from this very first 13 verses. There are things that God accepts. And there are things that God rejects. And so, 
in these first 13 verses, man panics, God provides. That's what we're going to see in the first three verses. Man chooses, God corrects. That's what we see in verses 4 through 10. Man forgets, God remembers. That's what we're going to see in verses 11 through 13. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Remember what's happened in chapter 15. The Lord has rejected Saul. And because he's rejected Saul, he's promised a new king, a man after God's own heart. That's what it says in chapter 13, verse 14. A man better than Saul. It says in chapter 15, verse 28. And when it says a man after God's heart and a man better than Saul, he's making references to David. Samuel is going to be instructed to secretly anoint this boy who would be king. And so why did the Lord reject Saul? Remember, remember, Saul was a disobedient king. Saul was an untruthful king. Saul was a hypocritical king. And guess what? In your life and in my life, There is something about hypocrisy and there is something about deceit and there is something about disobedience. I'm hoping that you come to a place in your life and in your walk and in your Christian conversation where you realize that all of those things God rejects. He rejects disobedience. He rejects lies. He rejects hypocrisy. And he doesn't want disobedience and lying and hypocrisy to be a part of my life or a part of your life. And so there are things that God accepts, and there are things that God rejects. And by the way, the book of Samuel will now turn its attention and contrast the jealousy of the man who would remain king and the man who must be king. But remember, this becomes a type and a picture of your life and my life. Because... There's a constant struggle for rulership in your life. Who will be, as we say in Spanish, encargado? Who will be in charge? Who is going to be on the throne? Who's going to be in charge? And think about what's happening. Samuel's feelings get caught in the crossfire. Now remember how all of this happened. The people rejected the aged Samuel. Remember, they said, Samuel, dude, you're old and your sons are corrupt and we want a king. And the reason why we want a king is so that the king will protect us. Now, think carefully about what's happening in their way of thinking. If there is no king, there is no protection. Saul is still in office, but he's unfit to serve. Saul remains on the throne. But remember why he is on the throne. He's remaining on the throne due to sheer willpower. And remember, it becomes a type and a picture of your life. Two kings. The person who's in charge of your life 
and the person who wants to be in charge of your life. And if you're a Christian, the person who wants to be in charge of your life is Jesus. He wants to be the king. He wants to be the Lord. He wants to be the decision maker. Samuel's broken fellowship with the disgraced king. That's what we learned in chapter 15. And so you can imagine how Samuel feels. He feels like a failure as a father. He feels like a failure as a spiritual leader. He feels like a failure as Saul's mentor. And so the Lord rebukes him. Saul. Samuel it says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Now, by the way, the word translated mourn in the Hebrew language is a word that you would use to describe sorrow over the dead. The idea being the kind of feeling that you get when you care about someone deeply. You deeply care for this particular person. Some of you have experienced mourning. You've lost your mother or your father or a brother or a sister. A, a, a tragedy, a, a trauma that occurred in your life. And you know what it's like to have someone that you love ripped out of your circumstances. And you are in pain. And you are in sorrow. And you are in grief. That's the kind of heart that that Samuel has at this very moment in the text. We know that the Bible says that there is a time to mourn. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 4, there's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to act. There's a time to get up and wipe your face and go on with your life. And that's part of what is happening. Samuel is grieved. But the Lord wants to minister. We all face times of tragedy and sorrow. A marriage might be dissolving. A husband might lose a job. A family member might be consumed with some sort of addictive behavior. We might be experiencing some personal failure. And clearly the Bible is not silent about trial and trouble and temptation. But the Lord wants to be the king. He wants to provide for you. We know that we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us and gave himself for us. The Lord has unfinished business with the old prophet Samuel. God wants Samuel to anoint a new king. And the new king he has described in a tribe and described in a family and described in a particular person. If Saul was the people's choice, David is God's choice. And by the way, if elections had been held at that time, David would have had no chance to win. Look carefully at the Lord's words. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. Now, this becomes an important issue, and it becomes a, an important point in the text. The Lord chose David. Do you realize that the New Testament teaches that we are chosen by God, adopted by God, accepted by God, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. And even though it might seem unbelievable to you, 
But if you're in Christ, you're chosen in Christ. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 78, verse 70, the psalmist wrote, He also, speaking of the Lord, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. God chose David. Now, here's the big question you should be asking. Why would God choose David? That's an okay question to ask. And I know some of you have already asked the other question. What in the world was the Lord thinking when he chose me? What was God thinking? I mean, in that long laundry list of people that you could choose to love and forgive and accept and walk with, why you? Are there people who are smarter than you and richer than you and more famous than you and more charismatic than you? Paul writes about it in the New Testament. He says, not many rich, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. So why would David succeed where Saul failed? Saul is a failed king, a hypocritical king, a lying king, a dishonest king. So why should David succeed where Saul failed? And the secret of David's success can be explained in three ways. Number one, because his choice is a divine choice. And number two, his preparation was a divine preparation. And number three, his calling was a divine calling. God made the choice. God qualified the man. God appointed the person for the office. And as unbelievable as it might seem to you, as unreal as it might seem to you, when you come to Christ... When you respond to the message of hope and the message of love and the message of forgiveness and the message of obedience, it's a divine choice. And there's a divine preparation that takes place in your heart. And there's a divine calling that's extended to you. The Lord follows you. The Lord prepares your heart. The Lord gives you a message of hope. And it's the Lord who takes you out of darkness and into light. This is a a powerful concept because it frees me from a lot of things. Number one, the pressure's off me immediately. No matter how stupid or smart I am, no matter how good of a Bible teacher or crummy a Bible teacher, no matter how persuasive or not persuasive I am, people come to Christ not because I talk you into it, And you've heard me say this on more than one occasion. If I can talk you into having a right relationship with the Lord, someone a little more clever than me can talk you out of it. So now I want you to think about this very first verse. David is introduced to us, listen carefully, as the answer to Samuel's sorrow. But also the satisfying solution to the longings of God's heart. Think about that for just a moment. 
David is introduced to us as the answer to Samuel's sorrow and the satisfying longing of God's heart. Do you remember in the New Testament when Jesus wept over Jerusalem? Jesus weeps because the human beings have failed to see him. They failed to recognize their true king. Jesus weeps because they don't understand that the visitation that has come to them has gone past them. And so think about what's happening The way we address human grief and human sorrow, we discover the man of sorrows. We understand the things that grieve the Lord. Samuel's sorrow, Samuel's grief is for the man who would be king. But the Lord shows up to dry Samuel's tears and soothe Samuel's sorrow. Because the Lord has prepared a king. Now this is the concept. God prepared a king, the true king, the righteous king, the appropriate king for your heart. You know, in the book of Revelation, chapter five, verse five, there's an interesting statement. An angel says, weep not. Behold, the root of David has prevailed. The idea being this. All sorrow, all tears all pain find an answer in the person of Jesus Christ. Because sorrow and pain and tears is rooted and grounded in a disobedience, a rebellion, a detachment from the true and the living God. And so the true King comes and provides hope and forgiveness. The Lord has chosen a king among the sons of Jesse. God will provide David. David was God's provision of of grace. And remember, that's what the New Testament teaches, that David's son... David's son becomes the ultimate provision of grace. David didn't come as a result of spiritual solicitation. David didn't come as a result of Samuel's prayer. Samuel is crying his eyes out because he wants to know what went wrong with Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, we read, The Lord has sought himself a man. It was the Lord who seeks out the appropriate person because we're not looking for that person. This is what the New Testament means when it says there's no one who searches after God. No one. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Human beings have gone their own way. So David's story begins as a longing deep in the heart of God. And if you'll remember, when we were first introduced to Saul, he was searching in vain for his father's donkeys. Remember, he was out and about in the hills looking for donkeys. And David's story begins differently. David's story begins, listen carefully. David's story begins the same way your story begins. You see, your story began with a longing in the heart of God. The story of a chosen vessel. The story of a precious pearl. The Bible teaches that the person who asks and seeks and knocks will find and will open the door of their heart. And the idea being, you are the person who is the deep longing in the heart of God. It was in God's heart from the very beginning to find you and love you and know you. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. So the Lord chose you, just like he chose David. And the will of God was the source of David's promotion. David doesn't get to be king because he applies for the job. David doesn't get to be king because he's, he's elected by the people. You know, in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, it says, you don't become a child of God by, because your parents are, are children of God or because you just wish yourself into the kingdom that if you, if you wish long and hard enough, you can talk yourself into the kingdom of God and forgiveness of sin and hope and salvation. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that you come into the kingdom because you're born again by the power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. David was in the heart of God long before he was in the hearts of the people of Israel. And so, here's the deal. When the Lord says, I've provided myself a king. This is interesting to me. When the Lord says, I have provided myself a king. This is the Lord's way of saying, I have made a provision for what I want. And by the way, there's a principle there. The moment that the Lord makes a provision for what he wants, guess what happens? Everybody gets provided for. When the Lord says, I am going to make a provision for myself, you become the beneficiary of the, of the provision. The Lord is going to provide for himself another king, a future king. David's son will be a king who will redeem all of humanity. And by the way, the moment God satisfies his own heart, God winds up meeting the need of every heart. The moment that the Lord purposes in his heart that he is going to provide a sacrifice for you, a provision for you, a king for you, a savior for you. And by the way, God meets the need of for everyone in Christ. For God's darling is in God's heart. By the way, that's the meaning of David's name. Darling. Isn't that interesting? David's main name means... I know, it doesn't seem real masculine. You know, when you, if you've ever watched the movie David with Richard Gere and you see this hunk of chunk of masculinity and you're going... Can you imagine meeting a guy named Darling? But the reason why the name is such an important name is he's the darling of God's heart. And so, in the story, we find David in the beginning. Forgotten by his father, despised by his brothers, unknown to the other king. But David is the king after God's heart and God's gift of grace, leading the way to the throne of glory. And then in verse 2 it says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now, you've got to understand something. Remember what we've learned about Samuel. So far in Samuel's life, does he protest about anything? So far, No. As a matter of fact, this is the only place where he protests. Samuel admits fear. 
he admits fear for his life because guess what? Saul, the man after the flesh, is still on the throne. And the mission that God called Samuel to complete was a dangerous mission because Saul would interpret the anointing as a threat to his throne and a right to rule. So the moment that now remember, Samuel is a circuit judge and he has to go from Ramah to the place of Bethlehem. And if you're unfamiliar with with geography, Bethlehem is on the other side of the Benjamite territory. And of course, Bethlehem is most famous for the place where Jesus would be born. And we know why, because this is the place of David's birth. But Samuel is given a cover story. Look. Here's the cover story, the Lord says. Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And then in verse 3, then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So the Lord's solution is to offer a sacrifice. Traveling to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice wouldn't really arouse suspicion because, remember, Samuel is a judge. And because he is a judge, he would go from place to place and circumstances to circumstance. He was a Levitical judge, and it would have been normal for him to hold court. It would have been normal for him to hear cases. It would have been normal for him to render verdicts. And so that would also have included offering sacrifices. Let me give you an idea of when a sacrifice might have been offered. Imagine a person gets killed in a particular province and they have no idea who killed them. As a matter of fact, there's a a story given in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 1 through 9 where you offer a sacrifice. So typically, if he would show up with a heifer to offer a sacrifice, it was to inquire of the Lord if there was any wrongdoing. And so in verse 4, it says, So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And the reason why is when the spokesman of the Lord showed up, it wasn't always with good news. If Samuel shows up, it could have been, Hey, guess what? Someone here is in deep kimchi. Kimchi is Korean cabbage. It's that... Stuff that they bury in the ground till it starts to rot. So that means you're in trouble. But look more importantly at this phrase, so Samuel did what the Lord said. In the end, that becomes the most important thing. In the midst of sorrow, in the midst of fear, in the midst of depression, in the midst of grief, When the Lord shows up and the Lord says, I need you to do something. That's the right response. Samuel did what the Lord said. And look, Samuel took his horn filled with oil. Now remember, the horn filled with oil becomes a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. And a heifer signifies the subjugation that characterizes spiritual power. This is The Holy Spirit coupled with a sacrificial death under the protection of which the servant of God can go in the face of bitter persecution and opposition. So think about this. There's two elements. The power of the Holy Spirit and the power of God's sacrifice. The reason why that becomes important to you 
is because that's exactly what you have in Christ. Jesus Christ is your sacrifice. The Holy Spirit is the empowering presence that gives you the ability to walk with God. And so, Samuel will make a sacrifice. And there will be a feast. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Samuel will offer a sacrifice and there will be a feast. And the people who show up to this feast will see the face of the one who would be king. Don't you see the imagery in the the New Testament? God sacrifices his son, Jesus. And the ones who show up for the sacrifice get to look at Jesus and see the face of God's anointed and God's beloved. And in verse 5 it says, And he said, Peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And then he consecrated or set apart Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now remember, we know that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Jesse is from the the tribe of Judah. And so Jesse's sons are invited to the sacrifice in verse 6. So it was when they came, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. It's his way of saying, This must be the one. Now, Eliab would have been what we would call a great specimen of masculinity. Tall, dark, handsome, with a charismatic personality. And by the way, Eliab would have a measure of fame later in life. He would be called a prince of Judah. His daughter or granddaughter becomes the wife later on in Jewish history of of King Rehoboam. But here's the challenge. This is like deja vu. Remember when Samuel picked Saul and he was head and shoulders above everybody else? Remember the reason why they picked Saul is because he looked like a king. And later, by the way, we see in Eliab the same vices of Saul. In the next chapter, when David goes to bring provisions for his brothers, it's Eliab who says, you little runt, what are you doing here? You just want in on the action. Now, he's like Saul, but to a lesser degree. But here's here's the challenge. God's choice is not Samuel's choice. On what basis does God make his choice? How does God choose? Does does God choose based on God-given ability, on human giftedness, on human attractiveness, on position or power or family? How does God choose? God chooses in in a way that's different from how we choose. God's election, the qualifications are inward. They have to do with the heart. Someone once said, God loves to work in wax, not marble. Let him find when he would mold thine heart material to his mind. God looks not on the outside, but on the inside. And by the way, even the servant and prophet Samuel is slow to learn the lesson. 
And so here's a man who loves the Lord and walks with God and hears from God. And he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him, but it's not true. The reason why this becomes important is because you as a godly man or you as a godly woman, you might be thinking, who is the best person to work in the children's ministry and student ministries? Who's the best person to do this particular job or that particular job? Who is the best person to be the pastor or the assistant pastor? Who's the best person to be the evangelist? Who's the best person to be this person or that person? And you might think, wow, look at this person. Haven't you ever said when you got saved, wouldn't it be great and then pick the most famous person that you can think of? When I was growing up, you know, we would sit around and we'd go, wouldn't it be great if Bob Dylan got saved? I mean, think about what a raw talent he is. Think about the cultural influence that he provides. Can you imagine what God could do with somebody like Bob Dylan? And then sure enough, Bob Dylan has his little encounter with the Lord. He even puts out two albums in a row. Talking about Jesus. Do you remember the song that he sang? You got to serve somebody. Remember, it went something like, You may be the ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You might be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. And he says, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Everybody, the world hated it. The people thought, blowing in the wind, cool. Serve somebody, not cool. Because Bob Dylan started talking about Jesus and about the Bible and about all of the stuff that the world hates. Eliab's the firstborn. He's good looking. By the way, do you know what his name means? Eliab. Eli is God. Ab is father. His name means my father is God. Cool name, huh? But he stands on nature's plane. His name may be cool, but he's not God's choice. And in verse 7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is perhaps one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. For the Lord does not see as man sees. We see what's visible and it's real to us. God sees what's invisible. God sees the visible and the invisible. We see the temporal and he sees the eternal. We see the mortal and he sees the immortal. We see that which is limited and he sees that which is unlimited. And you and I have already had this discussion. Remember I said that God doesn't have a point of view. God only has points to view. 
the Lord's understanding of human nature and human circumstances immediate and direct. And the Lord's understanding of each person is absolutely perfect. And because his understanding is immediate and because his understanding is direct and because his understanding is perfect. It surpasses my understanding. And if you're honest, it surpasses your understanding. Why would God choose him? Why would God choose her? What is it about that man? What is it about that woman? God's wisdom is perfect and our wisdom is imperfect. And here's the deal. God knows you better than you know yourself. And what do we really know about each other? We only know about each other what we are willing to reveal to the other person. But God knows the truth. Because His wisdom is perfect. The Lord is never duped. The the Lord is never taken in by lies. The Lord is never duped by hypocrisy or pretense or insincerity. And the the Lord is never swept up in our self-delusion. The Lord knows everything. He is completely aware of our sin. He is completely aware of the role that sin plays in our lives. The Lord is completely aware of our circumstances. And the Lord is completely aware of all of the things that are happening in our life for our good and for His glory. The most remarkable thing for you shouldn't be the astonishing fact that God knows the truth about you, the, uh, the, the thing that should blow your mind is that God knows the truth about you and loves you and forgives you and has chosen you and adopted you and accepted you and then forgiven you in Christ and then filled you with the Holy Spirit and then gifted you by the Holy Spirit so that you could be an effective minister, servant, of God. He loves you, saved you, gifted you. And so, the world can basically be brought down into two categories. Things that he accepts and things that he rejects. And look what it says, the Lord looks on the heart. But what does that mean? The heart in both the Old and the New Testament, it can mean the physical organ that pumps blood in your body, but it came to mean the mental and moral activity. The heart is the place where reason and emotion reside. The heart is the place where figuratively or metaphorically the hidden springs of your life. The heart is your motive. The heart is your reasoning. The heart is your behavior. The heart is the inner life. The heart is your personal life. And you know what? In the Bible, human depravity is described as being in our hearts. Sin is described as being in our hearts. It's the place. It's the inward place. But you know what's interesting? The heart is also the place where God exercises His divine influence. It's in your heart. 
that the Lord speaks. It's in your heart that the Spirit begins to move. And remember, that's what I mean. It's the inner life, the personal life. It's the place where reason, emotion, mental and moral activity is. And so, because it is the place where God exercises His divine influence, this is the place that needs to be transformed. And that's why the Bible describes having a heart of flesh Versus a heart of stone, a hard heart versus a soft heart, a wicked heart versus a pure heart, an open heart instead of a closed heart. In Romans 2.15, it says, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. And so the heart is the place where the inner man, the inner woman. The heart is the place of the hidden man or the hidden woman. The heart is the place where you are real. And the heart reveals the true character of a person. But also the heart serves as a watchdog to conceal the true character of the person. Have you ever been with somebody and you thought you knew them? You may have walked with them and talked with them. You may have even lived with them. And you may have lived with them under close scrutiny. And then you discovered something frightening. Altogether unbelievable. The heart speaks of the moral content of the person, the reason, the emotion, and the will. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. And many New Testament manuscripts read the eyes of your cardia. That's the word in the Greek language for heart. Now we know that the physical muscle that pumps blood inside of your body, does it have little eyes inside of your, of your chest? No. What it means is understanding. And so in verse 8 it says, So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Abinadab, by the way, means father of the person who's willing to give. Isn't that an interesting name? It means father of the willing giver or the person who's willing to give. So what do you think it is about Abinadab that caused his rejection? Because God will not accept what, what he hasn't chosen. I'm going to repeat that. God will not accept what he has not chosen. What has God chosen? God has chosen David. Now, before you get lost in some sort of theological drama, you have to understand something. God has chosen you in Christ. He's chosen you to love you, to forgive you, and to give you a promise, and to give you a hope. The issue isn't what we're able to give. The issue is, what is God willing to accept? And remember, the whole Bible becomes a portrait of that. You have two brothers, Cain and Abel. 
One provides a sacrifice. The other one provides a sacrifice. What is the difference between Cain and Abel? One sacrifice is accepted and the other is rejected. Why is one accepted and why is the other rejected? Because God will only accept what he has chosen to accept. And he has chosen to accept sacrifice on the part of a, of a person who is innocent. You see, if you've ever wondered, why does God accept me in Jesus? But he doesn't accept me in Buddha. He doesn't accept me in Muhammad. He doesn't accept me in witchcraft or, or I'm trying to think of something else. Atheism, agnosticism, and skepticism. And you might be thinking, well, you know, it makes sense to me that God wouldn't accept atheism because, you know, it's kind of not cool saying, uh, will you accept me even though I don't even believe you exist? Why should I even want anyone to accept me if I don't even acknowledge their existence? But there are some people who think that if you're a really, really good atheist, and you give to the poor, and you're a decent human being, well, then in the end, everything will be, be fine. But God accepts us in Christ. The issue isn't what we're able to give, but what he's willing to accept. And even though it might be difficult for you to understand this, I'm going to tell you anyway. Because it's something that you need to know. God rejects human wisdom. God rejects human wisdom. God accepts Christ. God rejects the best that humans have to give. God accepts everyone in Christ. And look what it says in verse 9. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. What do you suppose the name Shema means? It's the Hebrew word for desolation, emptiness. Shema doesn't answer the longing of God's heart. For whatever reason, Shema is not the person after God's own heart. He is not the one that God has decided upon. And so it becomes a type and a picture. The word Shema meaning desolation. Well, what about the poor person or the empty person or the person who needs this or that particular thing? Surely God will accept emptiness or loneliness or desolation. No. And in verse 10 it says, Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. You've got to understand, the resources of Jesse are at an end. Jesse thinks only of these seven. Seven is the number of perfection. Jesse's boys, these are great guys. These are the guys who, if they were on American Idol, you would go, Yes, these are the ones! All the while, while these guys are standing before Samuel, God's eyes on the little boy tending sheep. The forgotten guy 
next to the flock. Now, I want you to think carefully. David is forgotten by his own father, ignored by his own brothers, but he is the one who is the object of God's favor. And even though you might have been ignored or forgotten, you're the object of God's favor in Christ. The parade of man's wisdom and man's religion and man's best and man's brightest and that which is acceptable to man is rejected by God. Because even though this might hurt your feelings, God will only accept what God will accept. And what God accepts is Jesus. And that's exactly what Paul meant in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, when he wrote that we are chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. I want you to understand something. In this circumstance, David would be the one who would satisfy God's heart for the assignment ahead but that becomes the type and the picture of Jesus, David's other, his son. Nothing but Jesus will satisfy the heart of God or you. Now, when you stop and you think about it, what you really want the most and need the most, you have in Christ. And when you have Jesus... God is satisfied with everything about you. There's not anything else left to do. You don't have to grow an inch taller. You don't have to make one more dollar an hour. You don't have to start a church. You don't have to be listed in who's who of famous Americans. You don't have to have your own radio program. There's nothing. 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 That God requires from you. Other than to know and to love Jesus. And in verse 11 it says, and Samuel says to Jesse, Hey, are all the young men here? Well, there's just that runt. He's the runt of the litter over there. He's the little guy keeping the sheep. And Samuel says to Jesse, Send and bring him for... We won't sit down until he comes here. It's Samuel's way of saying, I can't even contemplate sitting down until you bring this kid over here. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise and anoint him, for this is the one. We're given a glimpse of the king. We we see the king. We understand he's a shepherd. Behold, he keeps the sheep. And you know what marks a shepherd? He loves the sheep and he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And a little bit later on, we learn that David will have an encounter with a bear. And David will have an encounter with a lion. And he will kill the bear. And he'll kill the lion to save one stinking little sheep. He will put his whole life at risk. He'll leave the flock, confront 
the enemy to save just one. And the Lord says, this is the kind of kid I could use. And the Bible describes David as ruddy. The Hebrew word is idom. You know what that word means? Red. Some scholars have, have, have suggested that, uh, well, I wonder if this means if David had red hair. I don't think so. I think it means something else. I hate to break the news to you, but David is a Middle Eastern dude. He's probably uh, dark. But I, I need to tell you something. Do you know we have a, a, an expression in our country? Have you ever heard someone referred to as a red-blooded American? What does red-blooded American mean? Is it a description of the color of your skin or your ethnic origin? What does it mean to be a red-blooded American? It means full of life, huh? That's the idea. Full of life. He is bright-eyed. You know what? The Bible refers to him as altogether. I know it, it seems not real masculine. But he's described as altogether lovely. I think Hollywood got it right when they cast uh, David as Richard Gere. You know, this, this sort of really good-looking guy. And then in verse 13, it says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. And so Samuel arose, and he went to Ramah. That's the place where he hung out. The Bible teaches, remember, that that horn of oil becomes a type and a picture of the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon kings, and the, the Holy Spirit would come upon priests, and the Holy Spirit would come upon prophets. But the Bible teaches that that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And it says, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. It's interesting to me that believers in Jesus are given God's Holy Spirit when they're born again and the Holy Spirit is in the very core of our being. The idea being that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and it's the Spirit who convicts us of sin and it's the Spirit who saves us from sin and it's the Spirit who assures us of our salvation and then the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us and protects us and the Holy Spirit gives us everything that we need. And so the man or the woman after God's own heart is given a provision in order to pursue God's heart. What more could you want? What was it about David? What was it about David of all the sons of Jesse that he was singled out? That he was chosen by God? That he was anointed by the prophet. The answer seems to be his heart. There was something inside of his heart. There was something inside his motives, his affections. There was something inside of his heart that God said, 
that's something that I can use. By the way, those of you who are familiar with the Bible and you're familiar with David, is his an absolutely pure heart? Is his an absolutely perfect heart? Now we're back to square one. It isn't absolutely perfect and it isn't absolutely pure. But in the midst of the imperfection and in the midst of the impurity, it is a heart that eventually finds its way back to God. In repentance. It's a heart that is willing to call sin, sin. It's a heart that's willing to turn from sin and to to turn to the provision of God. Kenneth Chapin writes, Like Samuel, we are too impressed by the things that we can see with our physical eyes. Consequently, we live in a world where physical, physical beauty outranks spiritual depth, where success in business and in church tends to be defined in materialistic terms, and where charisma is prized above character. And as a result, we're often moved to pick leaders more by their images that their managers create on television than by the character of the person or a candidate's stand on the issues that really matter. We need, with God's help, to learn to look upon the inward qualities. When I read that, I thought, is that true? To a certain extent, I think it is true. We may ask for God's help to learn to look at the inward quality. But in the end, can we see inside of each other's hearts? The answer is no. What can we see? We can only see what we allow people to see. And when no one is looking, when the lights go down and the television is off and the radio is off and it's just you and the darkness, what's the truth about your heart? Is it a, char- is it a heart that loves and longs to praise God? Is it a heart that prays? Is it a heart that longs to know the Lord, the character of God, and the provision of God, and the testimony of God, and the will of God, and the plan of God, and the promises of God? We're going to learn more about what it means to be a man or a woman after God's own heart as we follow David in his adventures. But make no mistake about it, the thing you're going to learn the most about is your own heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord David wrote, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my soul. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Heavenly Father, the man after your heart invited you to examine his heart. 
And Lord, as men and women of God, we invite you to examine our heart. Search us, Lord. Know us. Try us. Lord, reveal to us if there's any wicked way in us. And Lord, we pray that you would point us in that path and in the direction of David's son. Our Savior. That he would purify our heart. That he would create within us a clean heart. And that he would renew a right spirit within us. And that, Lord, we would be willing to think long and hard about what it means to be accepted and be rejected. Lord, we know that there's no place for hypocrisy. There's no place for lies. There's no place for self-rule. That you want Jesus to be the Lord and the King. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who for whatever reason they find themselves in a place where Jesus isn't ruling in their heart. That they've taken control of their own life. They're making their own decisions. They're following their own affections. Lord, I pray that they would repent. That they would step down from the throne of their heart and that they would allow King Jesus to live there and rule there. And we commit this to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name.